In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Let's let Saint John take us by the hand and guide us in our prayer as he writes in his first letter. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. John speaks to us of this mysterious reality of Jesus' presence. Mysterious in that we do not see his resurrected presence among us, that he is in our midst, that he is with us. But there will come a moment in which that presence will be revealed. It will be made manifest. The curtain will be drawn back and we will discover what now we can only grasp through faith that Jesus is risen, Jesus is with us, before us, above us, behind us, that for us to live is Christ. But John highlights how this reality, which we can now know through faith, needs to already be preparing us for that moment when he will come again, when it will be manifest, so that when he does, we can be in his presence without shame. As we consider the, the truth of our faith that there will be and is a judgment when God will come and put all things to rights, when evil and injustice and the horrors will all be addressed and corrected, where every tear that has ever been shed will receive a response, we also, for ourselves personally, want to look forward to that appearing without shame, confidently. And G John is telling us this, and he's trying to have us consider this closeness of Jesus and encouraging us so that at his second coming, we will not feel that we have to hide. And we will not feel that way if now we confidently abide in him. Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God. And we receive from him whatever we ask, because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. How helpful it is to see John's confidence in God's goodness. While at the same time being very much aware of how sin cuts us off from him, he nevertheless very... Uh, 
boldly proclaims to us, even if our hearts accuse us and condemn us, he is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. John is urging us on to do what the opposite of what Adam and Eve did after their sin, which was in shame to hide, to cover themselves. John, uh, looking forward to Jesus' coming, is saying, now in this present time and at his coming as well, we need to do the exact opposite, to not hide, to not cover ourselves. And in the meantime, This is what I want to spend the rest of our prayer considering. Those moments when our hearts do condemn us, we need to learn to react in a different way. How familiar an experience that is, where our hearts condemn us. It's a a biblical expression of this shame, that there's something about me that deserves harsh judgment, to be cast off, to be driven out, to receive the punishment of my first parents, cast away from that that discourse that Adam and Eve had with God walking in the garden and and spending that time the way intimate friends would, would do. Our hearts so often condemn us as not being worthy of such a relationship, not belonging there. That's not our place. To understand this, and here I'd like to kind of get a little bit philosophical on us in our prayer. It can be helpful to understand the way St. Thomas Aquinas tries to get a little bit more specific about what we understand love to involve. And he says a lot. But a simple way, uh, and I think a helpful way of understanding is, is that in love, there are two fundamental desires. In all love, love of friendship, uh, erotic love, divine love, love involves two fundamental desires. The first is the desire for the true good of the beloved. And the second is the desire for union with the beloved. Those are two fundamental desires that we don't have to think about. It's just what naturally arises whenever we have a motion of love towards someone. Desire for the true good of the beloved is, I think, fair enough and easy enough to understand. I want the friend that I love to be well in every possible way. I want her to be healthy. I want her to be well-fed. I want her to see the great movie that I saw and really enjoyed. I want her to enjoy the book that I've been reading. I want her to develop her talents. I want her to succeed at work. I want her to become better at what she does. I want her to enjoy the riches of life. I want her to be consoled in sorrow. I want her to be free from suffering horrible things. To want the good for the beloved is not, and I say all of this, it's not some sort of abstract, ethereal, spiritual, you know, metaphysical wish, you know, may you be well. (laughs) It, It involves and expresses itself in countless particularities, this desiring the good of the beloved. 
wanting her to laugh, at the same time wanting her to be free from her faults and the selfish things that disfigure her and alienate her from me, and make that friendship more difficult. And yes, taking it to the truest sense, to really desire the good for the beloved is to desire for them God. Because the more that we are united in our love of God, the more it is possible for us to belong to one another. The more my friend loves God, the more that friend can be mine. And I can be his. So desiring the good for the beloved is, is really one of the most fundamental aspects of love. And it's all-encompassing in this sense. And it's what permits the second desire of love to actually take place, this desire for union, which is a desire to not only be physically close, but perhaps most importantly, spiritually close. You know, we really care about a friend. Not only are we, you know, hoping that all is well with them, but we want to see them. We want to know how they're doing. You know, and I have to say, this is one of the great virtues. I mean, social media is a much maligned reality. But the fact of the matter is, is that I, I have friendships that I think would be very hard to sustain if I couldn't be WhatsApping and sending <coughs> photos and FaceTiming and all of this sort of stuff. Why? Because it facilitates this desire of love, desire to be close, to share, to have that union and that, that shared experience. So that when I love someone, or when I hope to be loved, and this is maybe a more interesting way of thinking about it, when, I, when I'm hoping to be loved for someone, what I'm hoping is not simply that that other person will want what is best for me, although I do want that. I'm also hoping that that person will simply want me, to be with me. Because it's mutual, you see, if, if, if in my love of friendship I want what is best for the person and I want to be close for them, well, of course, implicit is my hope, and it's just a hope because I can't make it happen, I can only receive it as a gift, that that person will, yes, want what is best for me, in other words, won't be a flatterer or someone who's going to utilize me for some need or gift that I might be able to offer, but is going to want what is truly best for me and, very importantly, is just going to want me. And we can notice, and it's very helpful for our prayer, how this is exactly how Jesus loves. How Jesus loves his friends. Through his preaching, his teaching, his correction, and his healing, Jesus is constantly seeking what is truly good for the people who come into contact with him. Constantly. Never a flatterer. Flatterer being a person who acts and, and speaks in a way to uh, give people what they want to hear because what he's really after is just their affection. Not really interested with, to satisfy that first desire of love. I just, I just want them to like me. Selfish. Jesus, of course, is the opposite of that. He desires the good. And so he will correct and he will teach, and he will explain, and he'll do it patiently. 
But at the same time, and it's important that we not stop there, Jesus wants union with the people that he loves. So much of St. John's account of the Last Supper is an expression of this. This desire of love that, that is, is fully alive in Jesus' heart. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Perfect expression of that desire of love. See, Jesus isn't just saying, well, look, I, I just want you to go to heaven and be there in kind of celestial bliss. No, I'm thinking about you. I'm preparing a place for you. And even though I'm going to be separated from you in a, in a way that in the Last Supper, Jesus is anticipating it as painful. And he's trying to encourage them how to understand that pain and that distance. But he's offering them the hope. He's saying, look, it's just temporary. I'll be back with you. I will not leave you orphan. Because where I'm going to be, I want you to be there too. I want you to share it with me. I don't want to be without you. This is how Jesus expresses love in a complete way. These two desires of love. So what about guilt and shame? This these feelings, these emotions that arise, not only when we consider the, the future judgment that we will face at Jesus' second coming, but the daily judgment that so often we undergo, not only because of the harshness of other people, but perhaps primarily through the harshness of our heart that condemns us. The great accuser, which is the biblical name of the devil himself, the one who with finger pointed accuses the holy ones of God day and night. Now, when a person sins, and we were considering this yesterday, when a person sins, she can feel guilt for her actions. A fear that, and a fear that arises from fear of punishment. And this really has to do with the first desire of love. Because I, one of the first desire of love is I desire the good for the beloved. So the fear of, of, of punishment is the fear, that, well, I'm going to lose that good. So instead of the other person desiring what's good for me, they're going to desire harm for me. They're going to punish me. I'm going to get it. Now, St. John speaks of this fear precisely in the first letter when he says, Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. By abiding in Jesus, 
By letting him love us and loving others as he does, that's what abiding in Jesus means. Letting him love us and loving others as he does. Then we have no fear of punishment. Because God is greater than our hearts when those heart, our heart condemns us, accuses, points out and rubs in our face the ways in which we feel that we have failed or come up short. We can turn in forgiveness. And this is, there's an important way in which in the sacrament of confession, every time that we go to the sacrament of confession, we are literally anticipating that day of judgment. But we are doing it in a key of mercy. I go and I say for this and for the other and I confess it and I manifest myself knowing that that fear that I have of, 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 having, of being punished is misplaced. Because I go to confession not to be punished, I go to confession to be forgiven. And to have that guilt removed. But we know from experience that having guilt removed is not enough. It's only part of the story. We still have to deal with shame, with the way in which we can still have our heart condemning us for being the kind of person that would do the sort of thing that maybe we've already been forgiven of. And here, it could be helpful to think about this, that shame has to do with the second desire of love. Shame has to do with this desire for union. Because a person who feels shame doesn't think simply that other people should be angry at what she has done, but they feel that she sh they should be angry at her. Shame isn't concerned with actions as it is with identity, with being. Not that they should be repulsed by her actions. She can agree with them on that. But her deepest fear is that they will be repulsed by her as a person. And in subtle ways, she internalizes certain standards according to which she is to be judged. And those standards according to which she can perceive herself as being ugly, repulsive, undesirable. And here we see a way in which kind of shame can detach from guilt. Because the fact of the matter is, is that many, many, many people feel shame innocently. Not because they've done anything wrong, but because they have internalized ways in which other people assess them, and that becomes a source of shame. Maybe it's just I'm, not, I'm speaking about all of this without example, just a prosaic example. I mean, if you were to walk around wearing a, kind of a nice big cowboy hat in Texas, you wouldn't need to feel any shame. You could feel right at home and it would be great. And, you know, people would look at you and say, good on you. You know, it looks good. And, you know, and where'd you get it? And kind of be great, you know. Now, if you went down Grafton Street... If you were walking down the city, you know, center of Dublin, you might feel a little bit more embarrassed. <laughs> you might notice that people looked at you in a strange way. Or if you went to a family function wearing one, you might feel a little bit of shame, you know, that oh, she's lost it or, you know, poor thing. And, you know. 
because you would, it's a different standard, right? It's a different standard of what's acceptable, what is, what is considered uh, attractive, what is worthwhile. Those standards are always there. We're always breathing them in. And not only, they're not, they're not subtle, sometimes they are very, very explicit. I mean, just think about the way in which Instagram fuels among young girls a constant sense of shame. Because all of these airbrushed, stylized, Kardashian-esque girls that are sprawled across in their photos, that is a constant standard by which I am not that pretty. I'm not that attractive. I'm actually quite ugly. And no wonder people would ignore me. No wonder people... And we can look at that from afar and say, oh, well, how superficial. Really? Are you that impervious? Is it that foreign to us? The ways in which we internal, internalize those sorts of standards. Because one thing is the way in which social media can do this. But all of us, everyone, I mean, a harsh, abusive parent, maybe in spite of their good intentions even, you know, you're never going to amount to anything. You're always so selfish. Why do you be so stupid all the time? These sorts of things that just get absorbed and internalized. And it becomes kind of a, a, a measuring stick that a person carries with himself and against which they're always failing. Their heart is constantly condemning them. But condemning them not for specific things done wrong, but for being a certain kind of person. Maybe it's the experience of, of humiliation or of rejection, of loneliness. One of the great tragedies, I think, generally speaking, and especially of our time, is that a person can feel shamed, as I said a moment ago, when they are morally innocent. And the reason why it's a tragedy is because I'm not just saying that this is something that just makes the person feel bad. But a shamed person can be just as fractured and divided as a sinful person. This is the horrible thing. Someone who is divided within herself because of not being wholehearted in her desires, just as she would be if she was morally culpable. This philosopher I referred to yesterday, Eleanor Stump, puts it this way. She says, a shamed person is divided into the self that is shamed and the self that has internalized the standards giving rise to a feeling of shame. A shamed person's repudiation of himself as ugly or otherwise understandably rejected is as effective as the inner dividedness generated by moral wrongdoing at preventing or undermining union, closeness, and love. This is why overcoming shame is so important. It's not just so that a person feels a little bit better. It's so that a person is actually capable of being loved by God and loving others. You see, it's not just enough to be exhorted to do that. Because if it were, it would just be a question of willpower. But willpower is not enough. 
We need to be healed by the experience of grace. But the experience of grace that comes in a very specific way to address this question of shame. And two antidotes, and, and we're running out of time in our prayer. Maybe we'll continue later. Two antidotes to this shame, insofar as shame fractures us in this way, are beauty and honor. To realize that I am beautiful for someone, unique and desired. Precisely responding to what that second desire of love longs for, Not just that the other person wants what is good for me, but the other person wants me. In other words, that I am beautiful and desirable for that person. And when I say beautiful, I mean, please don't think of Instagram beauty here. I'm not talking about that. This is true of someone who is is deeply ill and physically deformed, with slurred speech, and is physically just not attractive. But that person as well, and perhaps more than others, needs to discover that they are beautiful, but not by the cosmopolitan metric of beauty, but by this sense of being unique and desired. Beauty and honor, to be honored by someone who I esteem, someone who matters. This is an example of this. Just think of how, I think we've all, I hope, had the experience of of what a difference it makes that Someone that I look up to in a, in a normal way, someone that I care about, would respect. That person is interested in my opinion, what I think. It's a way of honoring. And it's a direct way of healing this shame. Because think about the opposite of that. You know, offering your opinion and kind of people look at you and you're like, yeah, whatever, anyway. It's a very humiliating, it's a very shameful experience to not be taken into account, to be disregarded. Because it feeds that inner suspicion, yeah, she's probably right. Now, this healing of the shame, these antidotes of of beauty and honor, of course, it can happen in our relationship with others. But... Well, we don't have enough time. But what I'd like for us to end our prayer with here is to consider how it happens and can happen perfectly with God. If the most perfect, good, and beautiful being, God, desires me, wants to be with me, well then, I am desirable according to the highest imaginable standard. Forget about cosmopolitan, forget about Instagram. If beauty itself desires me, think of how that standard should obliterate the other standard that I have internalized by which that repudiation, that condemnation of the heart takes place. In the Middle Ages, one of the most copied texts by the medieval monks, after Cicero, after the Bible and after Cicero, but even considering the Bible, the most copied text was the Song of Songs. 
this curious text in the Old Testament, curious because it's not obviously about God or anything. It's a, it's a marital love poem. But the reason why they were copying it out and spending years and years of their time doing so is because they understood that it was part of Scripture because it was somehow a revelation of God's desire for the individual soul. That it was to be read in a way that this is how God, in an allegorical sense, of how God thought about me. Love poetry. God speaking to the soul, the voice of my beloved, the soul says. Look, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. Look, there he stands, behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Many, many people have discovered in these words Jesus' desire for them. And it's very important for us to do so. I repeat, not because of any kind of self-centered, self-therapeutic desire, but so that I can free myself to be loved by God and to love others as he loves them, overcoming that internal division. Because if I am shamed, if I am fractured, if I am divided in myself, I will hide from God and I will not be able to reveal myself to others. I will preach at them. I will talk at them about God but I will not be in communion with them as we seek and enjoy that union with God together. Perfect love drives out all fear. This is what we want to aspire to. This is the healing that we want to bring about first in ourselves so that we can bring it about in the lives of other people. This is what is involved in discovering to other people that they are invited to live in this world as children of God. This is the message in St. John's first letter. Beloved, we do not know what we shall become, but we know that now we already are children of God. And therefore, we are invited to live without shame in boldness, confident before the Lord, and shameless before men. Let's ask Mother, our Mother Mary to help us discover this beauty, a beauty that she experienced and gave thanks for. The Magnificat is all about this. My soul rejoices and exults in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the lowliness of his handmaid. But Mary, in saying that, is saying, he has looked upon me, he's loved me. And all generations shall call me blessed. How wonderful. How beautiful. Let us, in spite of our weakness, in spite of the ways in which we feel that we can't even accept these words about ourselves, let us, confident that Mary is intercede for us, try our best, bit by bit, little by little, realizing that it's a process. It's, it's not simply a logical conclusion. It's a, it's a transformation that with God's grace, and our collaboration with it takes place over time.
I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.